Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. All right, I think my next guest knows this, um, but regardless, I'll say it anyway. Alison Komiyama, every time I talk to her, uh, I just have a great time. I mean, it's hard to imagine that somebody makes regulatory science fun. She seems to, to be successful at doing so. Allison is the owner at Acknowledge Regulatory Strategies. Check out their website, acknowledge-rs.com. But on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, uh, she shares some thoughts. If didn't know her background, there was a period of time in her career where she was a reviewer at FDA. And now that she's sort of on the other side of the equation, so to speak, uh, she recently said something in a, in a conversation that we were having. And I wish I knew that back when I was an FDA reviewer. I'm like, All right, pause. Let's, let's record our conversation and, and talk about those sorts of things. So she shares some of these tips and pointers. So I hope you enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, streaming to you live, or actually not live, it's recorded, streaming to you via audio and video. Uh, so if you're listening to us uh, as you normally do, that's great. If you want to watch these episodes, they're on video now. So go to YouTube, uh, check it out at the Greenlight Guru channel. Uh, be sure to you know, subscribe to the channel, hit the thumbs up and the likes and the bells and all those sorts of things that you do on YouTube. Uh, so that way you keep notified of that. Uh, but uh, either way, if you'd just rather listen to us as you're walking your dog and taking out your trash, that still works too. So uh, thank you. But um, joining me on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast is Allison Komiyama. Allison is the owner of Acknowledge Regulatory Strategies. So Allison, welcome back. Thank you, John. It's so nice to, to be back with you and also um, get, we get to see each other this time. So it's I know, it's been a bit. I mean, you, we were just catching up before the show about uh, last time that we connected. And it's hard to believe it's been, you know, uh, over a year and a half ago. I just, yeah. that just doesn't seem right. But uh, I know we're all probably excited to, to get back and, and doing face-to-face things. I mean, uh, not, we'll get into the show here in a moment, but you have a, a, an in-person event coming up uh, later this year, too, if I recall, right? That is right. I'm hoping you'll come. It's going to be uh, the Regulatory Alliance Forum in August. So, All right. Uh, I'm gonna... It's in person, and we're doing a smaller size so we can stay socially distanced and, and follow all the guidelines. But um, cool. All the speakers were like, yeah, we want to be in person. Let's yeah. all be vaccinated and be there. So I'm cool. excited. All right. Well, and we'll we'll send a link um, to all the details about that that event in the notes that accompany the show. But uh, you and I were on a call the other day. Um, so um, Greenlight Guru, we recently formed a regulatory advisory board. Uh, you were so gracious to be willing to be part of that. So thank you for that first and foremost. And this group of, of people, which, you know, I'm in awe in this group. Uh, like, like if you look at the backgrounds and the experience of these people, like, man, I'm like, it sounds weird maybe, but a kid in a candy store as far as regulatory is concerned. I get the, it's like, I feel like I'm at the, the all-star game of regulatory people. Maybe that's a better way to, and I get to, you know, I get the autographs for all these people and, and hear their insights and their wisdom. It's just a great group. But you said something the other day. I'm like, oh, that's a good topic. And the thing you said is, man, 
and I'm paraphrasing, maybe, maybe it's a direct quote, but something along the lines of, man, I wish I knew all of these things back in the day when, when I was an FDA reviewer. I'm like, let's talk about that. So you used to be an FDA reviewer. For a very short period of time. But, you, I but it still counts. It was not a very, you know, people there 15, 20 years. I'm like, ah, oh, I can barely hold a candle to that. But yeah, it counts. Thank you. It counts. It counts. I mean, you were an infant for, you were an infant for a very short period of time, but you still were an infant. That's <laughs> true. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So when you were there, I mean, you got to, if, if I recall too, you were like a biocompatibility expert, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was a, yeah. a bio nerd that did worked on a lot of different, yeah. uh, as a consult on different files, which I loved. And, and just an order of magnitude, not that it really matters, but like how, how many uh, submissions were you part of reviewing in, in your period of time at FDA? I mean, hundreds, not as a lead reviewer. No, I was a lead reviewer, but hundreds probably. Probably fifty to hundred. Okay. So you there. saw a yeah. lot of things. A lot of I things. Saw a lot of things. I mean, uh, I would say on any given day, most reviewers will have ten files that they're working on actively. But um, you also have consults. You know, it's a lot yeah, of other sure. smaller projects that you work on. And I was also doing research, so I, I was farmed out to the the folks over at Ocel, which I loved. It was like yeah. any postdoc that I got to do while I was there. Yeah. So now, fast forward uh, uh, a few years later, uh, at, at acknowledge regulatory strategies. I mean, you're doing what a lot, a lot of regulatory strategies, submission preparation. I guess. The name. Yeah. That, well, I mean, duh. But sometimes it's not obvious. Uh, but I mean, <laughs> what what types of, of services are you providing to companies these days? Sure. So we really stay on the pre-market side of things. So we do a lot of regulatory strategy. So we work with mostly smaller startups, anywhere from like one to 10 people on their staff um, and try and help them figure out, okay, what is your future regulatory pathway look like? You know, it's not, uh, it's not always clear, right? There can be five different pathways and, you know, do you do a pre-sub first? Should you go for breakthrough designation first? Should you forego all that and just go straight for your pre-market submission? So we do a lot of 510Ks, a lot of pre-subs, uh, uh, you know, recently breakthrough designation requests, uh, working on a couple of safer technology program applications cool. as well at the moment. Nice. All right. Yeah. So the, the comment you made, man, I, I, I wish I knew these things when I was a, a FDA reviewer. I don't know if you have a top three, five, 10, 38, but what is one of those things that you wish you knew? Sure. Uh, and I, I'll, you know, I'll start with saying I ex uh, actually went and, and asked a few folks that are either still at FDA or since left FDA as well, uh, what their take was on this. Cause I said, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about um, new reviewers that are at FDA and we've had quite a few as our lead reviewers on files recently where uh, they've never actually been in the building. You know, they are really uh, new employees. They're working from home. Uh, they've never met their team in person, their manager sometimes, you know, they haven't met in person. Um, so we're kind of dealing with a lot of new reviewers who are trying to navigate being a new reviewer and what, what's actually important. Uh, and we can see that reflected in some of the questions that we're getting. Uh, I think the managers at FDA are doing an amazing job trying to make, you know, to make sure that their teams get the training and the mentorship that they need while they're there. Uh, but it's hard. You know, and it's, it's it's hard when you're there in person. You know, I remember sitting down and looking at files, going like, "What am I doing here? What is you know, what is uh, four part harmony?" You know, so that that's actually one of the first things I was thinking about is 
deficiencies and how deficiencies are written. Uh, you know, uh, you're usually trained, or you're supposed to be trained that, you know, to provide what's called four-part harmony um, in each deficiency that you write. And, you know, you're supposed to list, um, you know, what was provided in the file, what's missing, what needs to be provided to answer this question or answer this deficiency, and why they need it. You know, what is the regulatory or scientific question that it's going to address? So it's, you know, becoming very savvy at understanding how to craft those deficiencies and that AI letter that says, you know, gets sent to sponsors. Um, and the other piece is also how do you manage your team? your consults on the file. You know, it's not just the lead reviewer that's looking at your submission. It's a team of people. And so oftentimes what I found one of the most challenging things is to, you know, take the deficiencies that are coming back from these various consults. That is my team that's helping me review this file and to look at their deficiencies and make sure that I'm managing the entire deficiency letter. I think what can happen is, you know, uh, the lead reviewer will collect all the deficiencies and then just compile and send it out when really in, in best practice it's going through making sure all of your consults are asking relevant questions you know is this really an important question is it truly something that is deficient about the file and then having that conversation with that consult and i think uh, you know it's hard to back down after you've sent that ai letter out once you've asked those questions uh, to say, oh, actually, never mind. That wasn't. That's not important, right? You kind of have to keep yeah. moving forward. So, um, yeah, I think that's one of the one of the big ones that I felt. Wow, I really wish I had uh, just had been, you know, trained more on what that needs to look like. So. Yeah. Well, and and I, I'm sure you've got a, a few other things uh, that are uh, top of mind for you or through your uh, connections and network, but but. Um, Part of the, what, what I'm curious about too, I mean, you just mentioned that a lot of these reviewers, they, they, they've never been in the FDA office. They've worked their, their entire time at FDA has been remote. And sometimes they haven't even met the, the teams and, and the, their colleagues from FDA. Um, I, I think there's that, that's, that's probably a huge factor um, in this. And then, uh, I was just catching up with with another peer the other day, and she was sharing with me. We, we were talking about breakthrough and step, uh, as you mentioned, but um, she was talking about some branch or some divisions are no longer um, receiving pre-subs for the rest of the year. I think one of them was like the IVD side of that. I'm like, that's what? It's like middle of the year. still a lot of 2021 left. And then we talk a little bit further. It's like, oh, well, they've been so inundated with EUAs on the IVD side of things that they're borrowing resources from other other groups within the agencies too. So I, I got to imagine that all of these sorts of things are, are creating some of the uh, challenges that that our industry is seeing right now. Absolutely, I think you know they called it surge uh, review, or you know there were different groups that were borrowing reviewers from other branches that weren't as impacted by COVID. And it was tough. I mean, I don't, I do not envy what they have had to deal with in the past year and a half. I think it's, um, you know, as it, there are a lot of people that have left, right? A lot of people said, I'm, you know, this is the right time for me to retire now. And so they're, you know, seeing a lot of the, you know, the veteran reviewers and people that have been there a long time leaving and then also trying to hire. And, you know, sometimes that, that knowledge doesn't, you know, uh, 
get passed on as seamlessly as we all would want. You know, I think, uh, you know, from industry's perspective, I often feel like one of the most beneficial things that we can do to improve the speed of review and improve, um, you know, uh, the time that our files uh, take to, to, you know, go through that process uh, is really to support the reviewers. You know, I think yeah. we often will see upper management making decisions or putting guidance out there and saying, hey, this is a great idea. This is a program that, you know, we're hearing uh, industry once and we're going to roll it out. And then the reviewers are there trying to scramble and understand, okay, what, what does that actually do? How does that actually impact my day-to-day -day review and the resources that I have available to me? I think um, that's a that's a disconnect. And I wish that you know industry could say, okay, how do we support the reviewers so that we can help them manage those two voices that are coming, you know, at the Yeah. Well, I mean you mentioned guidance documents, and I've heard this before, and I, I don't, I don't know. I've not sat on in the seat, but that um, um, in a particular submission, somebody was sharing that they had cited or or followed a particular guidance document for their their product or, or whatever the case may have been, but that they got a lot of uh, questions from the reviewer that were counter to what was in the guidance document. And it's like, now you got to dance this dance. It's like, ah, me as uh, the submitter of this information, I'm trying to, I've got this guidance and it's it's from FDA. And here this reviewer is saying things that are the opposite of, of that guidance document. And it's like a head scratcher. Like, how do <laughs> guidance documents, do, do reviewers get this information? Do they not get this information? How can I help if I'm submitting Say hey, here are these guidances from FDA that that we follow. I, I mean, is that a, a realistic scenario that happens um, often, or do you know? Yeah, and I, it's funny you bring it up. Last year at the Regulatory Alliance Forum, one of the former directors of one of the groups uh, who will remain unnamed, she said, "I have to be honest, I didn't read most of the guidance documents. They're very long. <laughs> they're really, you know, there's one every day." If, to come out right now I don't have the time to go through them so you know you you have all these files sitting on your desk that you need to review when do you have time to go read the breakthrough guidance document when do you have time to go yeah the, I mean you know, the, you're the already late in, exactly right so um, yeah I think that could be something that FDA could work on you know how do you make sure that the reviewers are uh, really up to speed on all the guidance documents that you're pumping out there all the time um, I think you know, from, from my perspective now, one of the ways we do it is try to incorporate the guidance documents into our files to make sure we say, hey, this is, you know, this is what you've said. You know, this is our, from certain press releases. This is, we're getting this language from you. Um, That's a good tip. Not to, not to make them feel bad or to say, you know, rub it in their face. It's more. Just to help them out. Yeah. Like here, you know, like, let's, let's talk about what um, your, your, you know, uh, agency has said and what we're trying to follow we're trying to follow your lead um and i one of the comments that came back on from one of my buddies uh she said you know one of the things she didn't realize when she was a new reviewer was how diligent a lot of us in industry are at keeping up on guidance and the changes in regulations because that's my job right um, yeah so that's what company, we do that's what we do right and in my company every thursday we have a journal club 
And in journal club, you know, it's kind of like when I, it's, it, you know, it goes back to my days in academia, we'd have journal club, we'd talk about cool new journal articles. And that's what we do. Yeah. We take a guidance document that's new. One of us will go through it and try to distill it and provide an output, you know, saying, here's what, what I take away from it and what we should all keep, you know, up on tabs. And actually, uh, David Pudwell, he has yeah. uh, Mr. Regulatory. I know you've interviewed or you've had him on this yeah. as well. Fantastic service. I mean, he has the Mr. Regulatory Guidance uh, Digest. I mean, and he really makes it easy to understand and walks you through. So, uh, you know, what what new guidances are out. So, uh, can't speak highly enough about what he's providing. And I yeah. hope and I believe that FDA reviewers are also consuming, you know, some of this content. You know, and I know that they listen to your yeah. podcast so. well i mean uh i don't maybe this is the craziest thing I, i've said uh probably not but maybe it's the craziest thing i've said today have you ever thought about uh, when you do your your uh, uh review your journal club your guidance review club um have you ever thought about just like setting up a camera and recording it and then <laughs> and then publishing it because i mean that might be good stuff right i mean especially for regulatory nerds yeah um i I have thought about it actually. I think the hardest <laughs> thing is we talk oftentimes very candidly about how does this impact current clients. Yeah, so we right, have to have a yeah. we have to have like an open session and then a closed door session or have everybody under a big NDA. But uh, so that's a, that's you're making me think, John. This is yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> the, you'll and then you you just get it to all the reviewers at FDA and they're like, oh, well, let's listen to Allison and her team. Review Maybe standards and guidances. The, the that, uh, they Seriously, I mean, I, I, I mean, it, there's. It seems to me like in the past, uh, certainly two years, but recently for sure that the volume of guidance that is coming out is crazy to me. Yeah. Uh, yes. I, I, and I don't know why. And it's like, well, if if it's if there's so much emphasis and time, if somebody's writing those things, you know, if there's so many people are, so many resources are being spent preparing these things, somebody thinks they're important for some reason. Uh, yeah. Seems like that would be worth, you know, at least uh, knowing more about or doing a better job. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's probably a whole different topic for, for a whole different day, but. Um, oh, that's, a, that's a great point. I mean, how do you, it's supposed to be FDA's current thinking, right? When a guidance document comes out. Uh, but we've which seen is it. confusing when it's not. Right. Yeah. Because there are separate, different groups at FDA and they say, well, we, we see that guidance and we read the guidance or, you know, maybe they didn't read the guidance, but they, um, but that's not how our, that's not how our, our current thinking in our branch, mm -hmm. which I know is not supposed to be how it works, but it is true. I mean, and there are different risks to different devices, right? I mean, sure. There's yeah, some absolutely. Uh, very low risk class two devices, in my opinion, and then there's some very high risk class two devices. And to try and you know, you know, say that they're equivalent um, in risk and how you need to review it, and you know, what are the biocompatibility impacts of those things? It's just not possible. So I, I know that, uh, yeah, it's not a one-size-fits-all for all the different branches at FDA. You know, um, yeah. I had a really great conversation. There's a, a person who just left FDA, I think, a week or two ago, and we just had a conversation. And one of his uh, comments, I asked him the same question, like, what would you, what recommendation would you give to new reviewers? And he said, oh, you know, one of the biggest things that he really focused on was, uh, you know, there's, there's what the regulations say, right? There's the, the legal 
definition and here's what the 21 CFR says, but really how do you interpret the regulations? You know, what is, what is the spirit of the regulation? Um, what does it mean and how does it apply, right? I think there are um, a lot of new reviewers or just reviewers in general that will just go to the letter of the law, right? Uh, another yeah. consultant I talked to, he said, you know, when I was reviewing things my, my first year, I just would try and make, you know, for substantial equivalence, you're just trying to make sure everything's identical, identical to what you, you know, <laughs> to the predicate, because that's what I was told. It has to be equivalent to the predicate. But there is, you know, the whole point of the 510K program, or one of the points of the 510K program, is that there are going to be differences. There's gray technology. There's there different to the, you know, there's there's got to be some design improvements over time, and it can be, you know, slow improvements over time. But it, you know, the question is, is that an appropriate predicate? And is, you know, the clinical use of this new method does it raise different questions of safety and effectiveness? Those yeah. are the questions, and you know. Um, trying to interpret the flowchart, right, of the 510K flowchart and trying to understand, again, um, what does the, the regulation mean? How does it apply to the device? And, you know, how do you ask relevant questions? How do you, you right. know, really understand the fundamentals of the device? And what does that, you know, what does that mean uh, with regard to risk? And is mm -hmm. it clearable, right? <laughs> I mean, um, I think for most devices, and I think when uh, when they do the Madufa or you know they're they're talking about their goals at, at FDA, uh, you know what are the shared goals? How do we you know how are they asking the right questions? Um, and I think a big part of that is you know yeah understanding the regulations and and really understanding their the spirit yeah. of the regulation maybe yeah for sure <laughs> yeah for sure. Uh, I want to take a quick break. I want to remind folks I'm yeah. talking with Allison Komiyama. Allison is with Acknowledge Regulatory Strategies. You heard her share a little bit about what her and her team uh, do and how they help companies. You can learn more about their products and services by visiting their website, acknowledge-rs.com. And uh, I'm sure they'd be thrilled to have a conversation with you and leverage some of their expertise. And Speaking of uh, companies that are here to help, this is what we do at Greenlight Guru. We're here to help as well. So we have the only medical device quality management success platform on the market today, uh, designed by actual medical device professionals for medical device companies. Novel concept, I know, but uh, you know we've got workflows to help you manage your design and development, document and records management, as well as post-market quality events, post-market surveillance, things of that nature. And that's a big deal. I need to be able to manage that total product lifecycle of your medical devices. So check it out, learn more, go to www.greenlight.guru and we'd be thrilled to have a conversation with you and see if we might be able to help meet your needs and your requirements. So Allison, um, you, you said something, you know, um, a moment ago about sort of that, that, um, review process and one of the things that that's that's sort of always been intriguing to me is that it feels like or has felt like in my past and maybe this has hopefully changed or maybe this is you, you haven't had this experience but it's always felt like that me as submitter of 510k whatever pre-sub whatever the case may be that I was just struggling to communicate with with the reviewer, uh, I felt like we were just reading from a different book or you know speaking a completely different language, 
and I remember one thing in particular. Uh, it drove me crazy, uh, but um, but I'll um, I'll open that that wound up a moment um, and share. But um, we, it was I was working on a five ten k. This this is a little bit of the way back machine, and the um, product had a, a, a material that uh, we weren't making this material. We were purchasing it, and there's like there's like three suppliers in the world for this particular material. And there is a complete uh, master file on file at FDA. It wasn't a drug. It was, it was a, a polymeric material that had, you know, full battery of everything for this specific indication for use. And now I didn't see the contents uh, the company is proprietary, but the company did send me a letter and say, Hey, you know, yes, FDA can access this file or you, you we give you our permission to, for the FDA to access this uh, on your behalf. Can't share it with you. But then I was asked to do the full battery test anyway. And I was like, that just didn't make any sense to me at all. And I wonder if it was one of those moments where there was like this literal interpretation of, of something that was written and not necessarily thinking in, about, okay, well, we already have this body of knowledge from the supplier on this material for everything that would be needed for that body contact and duration. I don't know. That was a, didn't really do a good job of asking a question there, but hopefully you're tracking with me and I kind of grab my power. So I'm, I'm listening. I'm just grabbing my, my, my plug here. I'm going to die in the middle of this thing. So (laughs) I was decent talking to myself. Yeah. Well, should have planned ahead. I just didn't do a very good job of that. But does does anything I just said make any sense at all as far as 100%, like yeah gosh yeah. I I um I feel like I you just kind of reiterated something that happened a couple of weeks ago <laughs> something I was yeah. like wow um so history repeats itself I think well and I think biocompatibility is one of those topics in particular it's just like people need to have um I mean I believe the regulation is clear and says I'm paraphrasing extremely here but Oh, if there's evidence that you can provide to support that it's already been addressed, then you don't need to redo it. Um, but but it doesn't seem to be the case. But anyway, I, I cut you off. Go ahead. No, I think yeah, Biocom's a really good example because I think you know there there's a clear standard, right? I said 10993 and uh, or dash one, and that's the you know the overarching standard for all the subparts of that standard. And FDA has, you know, a guidance on how to use 10993, and they came out with a, you know, an additional website recently that says, you know, here's here's how to look at uh, your device and how to decide what sort of testing you need. Um, and as a person who was a consult, a biocomp consult on many of these files, um, and I, you know, I could say that. That's, I sort of went through as a checklist, you know, I used it more as a checklist for uh, the early files that I worked on. And uh, it pains me to, to say that because I feel like I, I know, you know, seeing, uh, seeing it from this side, you know, gosh, it shouldn't be, right? It really is supposed to be a risk-based approach. You're supposed to use the wealth of information that you have maybe on a material uh, to decide whether or not additional testing is needed. I feel like FDA comes out with, you know, they want to reduce the amount of animals that they're using in testing. There's a global effort to try and reduce animal right. testing. Um, you know, for sensitization testing, for example, I talk, I've talked to recently to a lot of different test labs. 
three or four of them. And I said, how many times have you seen a sensitization test come back uh, positive or, you know, with a bad result? And they said this many, every single one said, you know, that test, everyone's got to do it. You know, if you have something that's touching. I had a failure and I'll explain it here in a moment, but go ahead. Yeah. I, and um, yeah, but you know, they've all said, nope, it, it really, um, how, you know, how sensitive is that sensitization test? And also how relevant is it um, for, to demonstrate that this, uh, you know, there's really going to be biocompatibility concern. There is a huge, this is a bigger conversation than for oh, this, yeah, you know, yeah, but, yeah. Um, you know, for, so yeah, I mean, you, how do you leverage master file information? How do you uh, use real world evidence or, you know, clinical testing that you've, that you've uh, gathered and uh, also looking at what are the reports on, you know, if it's a consumer product, right? If there is actually a material that's used uh, regularly in a consumer product, is that causing sensitization, irritation? So there's a lot of information out there. And I would say to my, my earlier self, uh, you know, if I had been working at FDA, like don't use it as a checklist, like really try to understand what are the important questions? You know, what is, is there something that could be toxic on the material that that's, you know, a residual left behind? If that likelihood is low or if that risk is low, do you need to go off and kill a bunch of guinea pigs? You know, that, that those yeah, are the questions right. that I, I feel like younger Allison uh, hopefully would have been receptive to. <laughs> well, I mean, here's what I've learned through my life and, and it's taken me a while to figure this out is that for most questions, there are multiple answers that are acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I think though that that's it's human nature to think, and, and I think industry is guilty of this too. I think industry is, is super guilty of, well, what does FDA want? Right. You know, what, what do they want for this? Well, what do I need to include? Blah, blah, blah. So they're, they're asking to be spoon fed, except for uh, sometimes when they're being spoon fed, they don't like how it tastes. And I was like, well, Think for yourself, step back. But, you know, I, I think that's a big lesson. Sometimes there is more than one right answer. But the um, the sensitization test that I had back in the day that failed, we had a antibiotic impregnated catheter that um, uh, was impregnated with, I was trying to think, don't share anything proprietary, but this is all public domain, that was impregnated with two antibiotics, rifampin and minocycline, um, one of them, I can't remember, had a um, orange, rusty color in, in nature. And the mm -hmm. catheter itself, once it was impregnated, uh, had that color. So it was a hideous looking catheter, but it was impregnated with antibiotics to prevent catheter-related bloodstream infections. Right. If I, I, and I, my memory could be off. I've had a lot of bourbon since this happened, but in <laughs> beer and and I'm old. Uh, but um, I think sensitization, isn't that the one where there's like a, a color uh, a component to, to the pass-fail criteria? Um, look at the color of the serum in the vial or something like that. I mean, you're supposed to always look at the, the change in yeah. the coloration. Um, but so, sure so this, yeah. well, it, in this case, when they did the extraction, uh, it the, the color of the vial looked like the color of the the antibiotics so it was right. like instead of being it's supposed to be like clear colorless or you know slight tint right. well ours were coming like clear but but uh bright orange rust color you know and so that was a failed test but it was so then it was like now that created a different challenge it's like now we had to explain why this test was not valid right for this particular product right. um but you know it's a challenge all right you know, so I 
I, I just want to add a point. I don't have been telling to any manufacturers that do any of the extract testing, ask the test lab to make sure they take images of it. Uh, because oftentimes it'll come back and they'll say it's tan or it's orange or it's, you know, has particulate. And oftentimes having the image of what sure. that actually means is very valuable um, for if and when FDA asks questions about it. So for sure. yeah, just because uh, <laughs> we do get questions like that from FDA. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think your your point earlier about yeah, you know, um, I just it, it, right before you were talking about the the sensitization test, I was thinking about um, you know as a reviewer, you feel a huge burden of um, wanting to make sure that nothing bad happens on your watch, right? Like, I think there is a huge, um, you live by the mission, right? To protect and promote. Uh, and I felt so strongly that I didn't want anything on my tenure while I was reviewing something to go off and injure someone and cause damage. No one wants that to happen, right? And so, um, you know, you ask questions and you ask a lot of questions or, you know, you, if there are things that you don't think quite meet your standards or meet the, I'm sorry, you know, standards that FDA sets and that meets, uh, you know, the substantial equivalence if you're doing a 510K. Um, I think there's got to, you know, I, I will say of all the 510Ks that we've submitted, the Novos we submitted, um, I've only ever had one that had zero questions back, right? Every, yeah, you know, it's a rare, it is a rare. Right? Because yeah, as rare. you said, you know, what are, um, industry wants to know, well, what's FDA going to ask? How do we, how do we manage? Um, and I want to submit a perfect file, Allison. Like, how do I do it? I don't want to have, uh, I don't want them to ask any questions. And I'm like, that's just an impossibility. I've only had it, again, once. <laughs> and it was a pretty straightforward file and I, I couldn't believe it. It just got clear. We didn't even yeah. know who the lead reviewer was. And there's and like this, I tell you know, people all the time too, sorry to cut you off, but yeah. what I tell people, if I could predict what questions the, the FDA were going to ask, don't you think we would put that in the submission? And if yeah. I could predict such things, uh, you would never know me because I would already have an island somewhere because I would have already made a bazillion dollars selling my my trade secrets to people. But, exactly. Bye. Uh, I'm gonna go buy. <laughs> yeah, there's gonna be questions. I mean, I I, I think it's just good uh, good preparation, mental preparation for those who are submitting. You will have questions, and right. there will be things that you haven't thought of. Just right. know that some of them will be simple. And maybe just clarifications. Others might not be. So uh, you just got to prepare for it. Right? There's strategy to what you submit. And I I feel like uh, all the all my friends that are, were FDA reviewers that are now in industry, uh, the unanimous thing that they all say is like, I wish I had known what was actually important. Because, you know, there are some oh, questions wow. you're like, oh my gosh, would I have cared about that one detail? probably not anymore. This was the big burning question. And this was, you know, right. this really shouldn't have held the file back from getting clearance. I might've asked a question about it, but really what were the major deficiencies? And, and um, you know, we, we all joke about, gosh, wouldn't it be nice if you could say, listen, FDA, <laughs> I'm sending this file in and here are the two sections I, I really think you should focus on and where I anticipate you're going to have the biggest questions. But of course, you know, I, clients <laughs> I don't lead the witness, yeah, right? Exactly. Well, but, but, I, but, I, but I think it's like the whole process uh, and I know it's gotten better in recent years, but I mean, back when I started, it was definitely a throw it over the wall and cross your fingers uh, type of process uh, where you didn't have any dialogue or collaboration or interaction with the agency. You did 
what you thought and, and largely was informed by the success or failure from the last time that you did this. Um, and then you, you sent it in and you waited and you didn't have any confirmation. I, mean, I think the mail sent him probably sent a note that said, yep, got it. But didn't really have any confirmation or, or definitely no interaction until, you know, day 60, sometimes day 90, you get a list of questions and you're like, oh, my God. But then you did it all. It, the, 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 there was no communication. It was just static things yeah. back and forth. And, and it's still kind of like that. You know, it seems to me that, whoa, can we just take a page out of the pre-sub book when it comes time for the 510k, at least get everybody in the room after they, you know, all the reviewers and the consults have had a chance to review their thing. Bring your, bring any and all questions and let's talk through them and let's figure out together as submitter and, and reviewer, maybe we can figure out, you know, what, what's, what's the big deal and what's not the big deal. That way we can both be on the same page. It just seems like there's an opportunity there, but that may not be that pragmatic. I, agree. I think the most successful files we've had in the past, you know, two years or since, you know, especially since COVID because everyone's working remote uh, remotely is that uh, anytime when we can get the reviewer on the phone, like there are times when it's just like, Oh my gosh, the emails back and forth, and especially FDA said, you know, yes. put, it in a pre-sub, put it in a pre-sub. It's like, Oh, if you'll just get on the phone with us, honestly, it'll take five, 10 minutes. And we can get so much accomplished. And I think a lot yes. of reviewers are very hesitant to do that. They think they're going to be put on the spot. They think that they, you know, I'm, you know, the the CEO is going to get on and yell at you know at FDA. And that's <laughs> really not the case. You know, it's like help us understand what you need because yeah. I think one of the misconceptions at FDA, uh, and I felt it, you know, is. Um, gosh, you know, industry is, uh, they're going to try and pull one over on us or they're, you know, they're, they're all shady. <laughs> Which, um, I didn't feel that way. But, you know, just, <laughs> like, oh gosh, you know, uh, I'm here to protect and promote public health and that's my job. But I think what you forget is that's also industry's job. I don't have any clients. And I can say this. Yeah, I know. 100%. I have no, I have no clients that feel like this is just a big business enterprise. I don't care about patients. I'm doing this for money that's never like, I guess I don't bring those clients onto my, yeah. into my portfolio, but I'm like, everyone. I mean, yeah, so those people exist. Yes. There's, there, no, yeah. There's I mean, those people exist, but, but I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day about, about, you know, they were new to the industry and, you know, they had mentioned some um, negative thing that they heard. I'm like, well, okay. Yeah. I'm not naive. Certainly these things happen, but you know, I surround myself or throughout my career, I've been very blessed that the people that I interact with, the medical device professionals that I interact with, they care about improving the quality of life. Yes. Um, yeah. And they put that at the top. That's like their North Star. That's the, the main thing that, that guides them in their day to day. And and I think that that's there's always bad apples. But I think generally speaking, that's that's who we're dealing with in this industry. People that actually care. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think. um and that's what's so heartbreaking sometimes is you, uh, you know, when it comes to benefit risk of a, a device or it comes yeah. down to, the, you know, the last push to get something, uh, you know, cleared or granted or approved is, gosh, are, you know, are we going to, to deny something or deny this technology getting out there that is bound to help a lot of people uh, because of, of one small thing. And I, you know, it might, it, it, again, 
you know, it's uh, we have to make sure we answer all the questions, right? We have to sure. make sure that we've made every consult and the lead reviewer happy on the file. Uh, it's just, you know, weighing those different things. And FDA, has done, again, we get back to the guidance documents. FDA has done a fantastic job providing guidance on benefit risk and how to use it in yes, they have. Uh, regulatory decisions, right? And I think mm -hmm. I had a, a reviewer recently who said, oh gosh, <laughs> could you put um, could you put some of that uh, additional information into your response? That's actually really <laughs> helpful. And I, I, you know, I don't know if she had read that guidance or even knew it existed. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I'm happy to do it. You know, like that's, you know, that's the stuff that if that makes her sleep easier at night and feel comfortable making the, the final positive yeah. decision, absolutely. Yeah, and and you know, I, I guess I'll say this for you know both industry as well as as uh, agency. If you're if you're listening, you know, we try to you know on the Global Medical Device Podcast, um, we we try to cover uh, quite a bit of things regulatory related, submission related. Allison mentioned uh, the um, uh, Mr. Put or Mr. Pudwell. Well, I guess he is Mr. Pudwell. David Pudwell, Mr. Regulatory. Um, he has a, a YouTube channel. Um, that you know, he goes through some guidances and different uh, aspects of regulatory. You, know, you guys are at acknowledge you're you're pretty prolific on the writing side of things, right? Yeah, yeah. we love. Um, so we'll have like medical device Mondays, which we love, uh, and that talks about cool new devices that FDA has recently cleared or approved. Yeah. And uh, I, I we just kind of geek out. I mean, none yeah. of you. Know, it's just stuff that we've seen come off the FDA press. You know. Uh, news press and that yeah uh, but the other one we will have another one coming up shortly too uh, fda friday you know it's been fun to interview former fda reviewers and just see you know ask them questions like this uh ask them questions about you know what was your experience like at fda what were some of the you know, what was the good what was the bad and uh, i love that and actually uh, a lot of fda reviewers read it you know they uh, yeah. i had some uh, when i was at an fda pre-sub meeting a year and a half ago now, someone said, oh, you're the, you're the lady, the blog lady. <laughs> I was like, oh, am I? Yeah, that's what I'm... The oh, blog yeah. lady. That's, that's what I'm going to call you. That's what I'm going to call you from now on, the blog lady. <laughs> the blog lady. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's nice. I feel like that's, um, you know, I, I am so impressed with what Greenlight Guru is about to, is, has oh. been able to accomplish in the Thank amount you. of content that you are able to put out because it impacts... Uh, you know, it, it helps industry because we all, you know, people can better understand, you know, what's the difference between intended use and indications for use? What's the, what's going on in cybersecurity and software? Uh, and I know right. that FDA consumes that content as well because yeah. it's good for them to know industry's perspective on what, what they're doing in house. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and thank you. And I, that's, to me, that's the most important thing that we do at, at Greenlight Guru. Uh, yeah, we have an awesome software platform, but, you know, we get to collaborate with people like Alice and Komiyama and, and many, many other experts in this industry. And, you know, we, we are fortunate that we have, you know, a large um, subscriber network, uh, you know, folks that are consuming, but, but, you know, I've been through it. I, I know how frustrating it is to read a guidance or a regulation and be like, okay, I know what all of those words that I just read mean, but when you put them in the combination and the way that they were put, 
I have no idea what that means. So sometimes it's helpful to have someone that can say, oh, okay, well, here's what that means. And here's why that means that way. And here's some supporting evidence to corroborate that. So, you know, I think that's really important uh, objective that, that we tried to, to do at Greenlight Guru. Um, so I appreciate the, the comment. Um, wrapping things up today, any last minute thoughts, tips, pointers, advice, any anything that fits into that bucket? I, I think I just on to the last point, I, I think the uh, most successful uh, reviewers in my perspective, like the ones that I see nailing it and getting their files off the table and, and getting things done quicker, the ones that are willing to pick up the phone are the ones yeah, that are willing sure. to be collaborative. I had a conversation recently with someone um, from the breakthrough designation or the breakthrough program. And their comment to me was, you know, the, the most uh, effective uh, use of the program is when it is collaborative. You know, when the review yeah. team and the industry team can see eye to eye, see the value of the program and work collaboratively to move sure. things forward. Otherwise, you have designation, but it doesn't benefit you. And, you know, the reviewers just see, oh, gosh, this, you know, it's just more resources and I'm too busy to, you know actually review and do sprint discussions so I, I but i see that across the board anytime that it can be an open dialogue you know that it can be hey help us understand what it is you actually need um, and you know not to recommend a pre-sub for every single interaction uh, those are the ones that really get done quickly and you know it gets back to those shared goals right it actually reduces the amount of time that a file actually takes to to review so yeah I'm, I'm optimistic. Tip. I feel, you know, I, I, there's a lot of new reviewers at FDA. They're, they think scientifically, and uh, I'm just uh, excited that maybe we'll be able to go back in a year or so to go and have some meetings and, you know, some interviews. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. I mean, I know FDA reaches out to industry from time to time to for folks to come in and provide training and, and things of that nature. They had a program there a couple of years ago. I can't remember the name of it, but I'll have to, hopefully that comes back because I think those were, were great opportunities for industry to share with with the agency. But Allison, um, thank you. I uh, we should do this more often. I know we say this every time we do this, but um, uh, this time we're, we're going to make sure that we do this more often. I know you have lots of insights, nuggets, and all sorts of wisdom that you can share. And you know, you've been. Although it was only for a short period of time, you've been on both sides of the fence. So yeah. that, that knowledge is invaluable. Um, plus, even though you know you may have only been there a short time, you're connected with this whole uh, network of folks who who also used to be um, with the agency, you have conversations with them on the regular. And I know that you're extracting additional nuggets of wisdom and, and all sorts of knowledge from them as well. So thank you. And folks, Check out uh, Acknowledge Regulatory Strategies, acknowledge-rs.com. Uh, attend their upcoming event, or at least I think you can do it virtually, even if you can't do it in person, right? If I remember the Reg AF event. Yeah, if you're not going to be vaccinated, there is the option to, to attend. So, yeah. All right, so we'll, we'll get you all that information so you can check it out. As always, thank you for being listeners and watchers of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Again, hit that subscribe, click the bell, uh, you know, thumbs up, whatever is applicable and appropriate in this case. Do all of that so that way you get uh, up-to-date information about when new episodes are live. 
Uh, and as always, this is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. <laughs>